Yo, 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 yo. Whether you're wearing pants or not, welcome to No Pants Required. I'm your host, X3C, and thanks for joining. Today's quickie, requesting credit card increases. Ladies and gentlemen, you've come to the right person. I have made mistakes on top of mistakes, on top of mistakes, underneath mistakes, throughout my life, throughout my history. Did I tell you guys I was an old ass person? I really am. So I have a wealth of knowledge for you guys. And this episode is going to bring additional wealth of knowledge for you because I have a special guest. So today's quickie, requesting credit card increases. Recently, I did it and I didn't even need an increase. I just did it because I felt like doing it. Not knowing that it actually improves your credit standing, your FICO score. Who knew? I know Susan Allman told me. I read her books. She's an outstanding lady when it comes to helping you break through the um, the FICO score when you're really trying to get your score up. And so I follow some of the techniques. I do have an episode that is coming out called Boosted Credit Scores. Stay tuned for that episode. However, when you request your credit uh, credit card increase from a credit card company, you know what essentially what it is doing is providing you um, additional amount of credit that you you have available towards yourself. But what it also does is it tells the three credit bureaus here in the United States that you have additional credit available to you and less debt that is going against your credit history. It's outstanding. It's also frustrating. I hate it. It's a paradigm. It should be all eliminated. However, since we live in this world, might as well follow the rules, might as well explore the rules, exploit the rules. And that's the quickie for today, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Thought I'd make it a good fun one today. Today's episode, WAP, Investment Opportunities. I know you guys heard that song. I know you heard that song, right? That song, Cardi B, wet, wet, wet ass. Nope. Wealthy ass people, investment opportunities. So today's episode, I'm bringing to you guys a special guest, someone I will call a true friend. A true friend. Let's see that tear. See that tear? Welcome, Don, to the episode, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, thanks for having me today. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Uh, I so, got a tear in my eye already. You're yeah. you're my true friend as well. Oh my god, this is this is nice. Gonna a, this is gonna be a very emotional episode. So Don is a neighbor and a fellow CrossFitter. We actually met in the gym randomly, right? You're in a CrossFit gym, you're working out. This new guy walks in. People talking about who's this new guy? I was like, I don't know this new guy. A week or two later, I see this new guy, and we yapping away. A few other people are yapping away with us, and um, come to find out. He lives in the same community in which we just purchased a home one block from each other. And that became that became our, our, our start of our friendship. Yeah, I don't know. I think we just hit it off right off the bat, you know, uh, CrossFit gym, living in the same community. I think, uh, you know, I think you got I thought you retired me at the gym, but I think when you saw me in the neighborhood, you're like, I have to deal with this guy. So, uh, you know, I'll put on the happy face and, you know, keep you know, the relationship going. This guy has a lot of energy. Again, I'm old. This guy has energy. And so it took me a while to get up to his energy level. And I had to also slow him down a little bit, right? You know, he wants to get in the gym and lift 300,000 pounds of cleans. I'm like, dude, I can't lift what you lift. We're in two different, we're in two different categories here. Yeah, but we're a good team. We're a great you know, team. We, we, we support each other. That's Absolutely. What matters. Absolutely. So I asked Don to step into the episode because Don has a lot of knowledge. Uh, he comes, he brings um, 
a tremendous financial background, if you will, literacy. And so, but before we jump into that part of the, of the, of the episode, I do want to ask you a question. Yeah, Tell me it. something you think is true that almost no one agrees with you on. That's a good question. Um, my, my knee-jerk reaction is that I, I have jokes, that I'm a funny individual, because I believe that to be true. Uh, and uh, I think a lot of my friends and, and people I know <laughs> would say that uh, I'm not the funniest guy. But, uh, you know, I think also, if I'm thinking about it more from a professional standpoint, I think a lot of the time... Um, people need to realize that no matter how good you are at something, you can be replaceable. And I think that's a, a good lesson in humility, in, especially in a professional environment where, you know, you may think you're performing at the top of your game, but then, you know, if you get complacent, if you take things for granted, there's somebody who's just as hungry, if not hungrier than you are, waiting on the back end to come up. So I, I think, you know, it's... Uh, Maybe indirectly answering a question, but yeah, you know, I think it's just something to be cognizant of that, you know, I definitely believe it's true, but maybe people aren't actively thinking about. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. All right. So today's episode, we're going to dive into investment opportunities specifically, specifically, we want to talk about, you know, developing two separate partnerships, if you will. Right. And so what I want to explore with you um is a little bit on like how do you develop a partnership and it doesn't necessarily have to be about like a domestic or international you know investment opportunity but you know there are some differences when you're purchasing or going into partnership and purchasing investment opportunities um domestically or internationally so you know we definitely want to explore that angle and all the different ramifications that are related to it and so i, I feel like the, the listeners here will get a tremendous amount of wealth of knowledge but before we do that just want to tell a little bit of background about yourself, you know, maybe how did you get to the career that you're in now, you know, maybe even some mistakes you made along the way? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, a lot of mistakes, but um, I guess we could start off, you know, college finance major, you know, I think I was, uh, you know, uh, stars in the eyes, like every other kid coming in, you know, through that degree in college, you know, I got to get into investment banking, I got to work for a big four, you know, do some form of mergers, acquisitions job, uh, you know, valuation job. And it came to the point after multiple interviews and, you know, trying to look to, you know, be around, you know, my, my wife, but girlfriend at the time up in Boston, like, you know, how are we going to make this work? So there are a lot of factors at play that, um, you know, brought me up to my first job at a custodial bank um, into the city. And, you know, I was kind of burning the midnight oil on that job, uh, you know, uh, making relatively low wage, but still grinding and living in a city and then starting to realize the value of a dollar uh, coming out of college and, you know, realizing, Hey, this is maybe something I thought I wanted to do, but now I'm really not sure. Um, I had a friend who um, put me in touch with somebody at uh, an asset management firm in the affordable housing space in uh, in Boston that I later applied to and got the job and got exposed to the uh, affordable housing world and investment world. And from there, I, I took on a consulting job that eventually moved me on to DC. Uh, but I knew I always wanted to be in real estate development. So um, after I moved down to the DC area, um, I found a local uh, Maryland uh, affordable housing developer, uh, you know, jumped aboard as a, a mid uh, middle tier development professional there. And now I'm currently the uh, director of real estate development. Nice. So, you know, I was watching a show recently, uh, a daytime talk show, and they had they were talking about the Dave Chappelle issue about, about affordable uh, housing and that it was it felt like the titles of the, of the articles. It, 
I won't say it was clickbait, but it was somewhat clickbait, right? Because, okay. I mean, Dave Chappelle wasn't necessarily saying he was against affordable housing. Mm-hmm. He was against that developer and that affordable housing plan. And so as that conversation went on, you know, we really talked about, you know, Renee and I talked about recently the word affordable housing. Like it, it, it receives like a negative stigma and that affordable housing is for poor people, right? Or yes. people who can't. But that's not what affordable housing is. Yeah, not at all. And so, you know, it, we, could, we could talk about that right now if you like. But it's it's definitely something that I think I, I want more people to understand. You know, affordable housing, like for instance, in our community now, you know, there is a set percent that is set aside for air quote affordable housing. Right. Um, but it's not it's, it's for those who work for the county, you know, police officers and are firefighters i'm not sure the full category of of the individuals in their professions that's not poor people if you will right it's just there are individuals who may not be able to obtain the the, to live in a certain community you know by setting aside a percent of air quote affordable housing you know those, those individuals can now you know live in those same type of communities or communities that they desire to live in I think it's a good point. I, I think you you hit on at the the beginning of, of what you were saying is the the term affordable, you know, to people outside the space really has to do with the perception of the word and not necessarily the the population it's trying to serve. Because yes, you can build an affordable housing product that is centralized around the chronically homeless or permanent supportive housing. Mm-hmm. Or you can build an affordable housing rental or for sale product like you see in our neighborhood that's geared towards the working class. Yes. Um, And, you know, a lot of localities now are, you know, rephrasing affordable as quote unquote attainable housing. Oh, I like it. Or missing middle. You know, you'll see that term thrown around a lot because, you know, as income disparities grow, especially in Montgomery County, like where we're at, or, you know, Northern Virginia or more of these um, affluent suburbs of cities. It's, uh, you know, that stigma broadens, I think, with the term affordable, um, because there's a lot more people who may not understand the term. Yes. Um, but then also the the good that it's serving. But, you know, in, in my past experience, I've been to about 25 states. So, you know, um, average income for a four person household in Montgomery County is about $129,000 mm-hmm. in, you know, the middle of the country in rural Oklahoma, it's about $24,000. It's a big difference. Huge difference. And it's also just a completely different population. Mm-hmm. And you kind of can see de- demographic shifts even just with the, the internal regions of a city or suburb. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that kind of damage has been done over time, but maybe a little bit, a little bit outside the scope. Right. Of, but also the, education, yeah. right? You know, I, I recall a few years ago with Bethesda, um, the population of Bethesda, which is the city here in Montgomery County, which is a city here in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I believe it was 83 or 89 percent, somewhere in the 80 80 percent range of of residents had a bachelor's degree minimum, you know, and I and that's 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 different. If you compare that to other parts of the country where the education level may not be as high, unfortunately, that that could correlate to their income levels as well. Uh, correct. And I, I think, you know, to, you know, peel back the onion, which maybe we can do on another session, just kind of getting into how we got to where we are today. Um, you know, it, it, it all stems from a lot of systemic issues, you know, in the early, you know, yes. 1900s. So, um, yes, but uh, I'll, I'll let us get back on yeah. to the, the yeah. questions at hand. 
Yeah, because I don't want to dive into the deep about, you know, we, we did have a, oh, I, did, I will dive into this joke. Well, not really a joke. It was actually sad. Oh, <laughs> we, no. we actually walked <laughs> around the corner uh, to get Starbucks recently. And you and I were talking about um, our first jobs. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I recall, I recall the experience out of college receiving the first, my first job offer and being excited about it. But subsequently being horrified at the first contract I received mm -hmm. and the dollar amount that was associated with it. And I, I, I won't lie to anyone. I cried. Yeah, I think it comes down to, you know, you get through your college experience, then you maybe consciously or subconsciously compare yourself to peers. And, mm -hmm. hey, this is what I'm entitled to make. This is what I should make. Oh, industry. You, correct. And then you get level set from a few job rejections. Yep. So then it lowers your expectations even more. And you're like, okay, well, maybe I'll apply to that second tier job. Right. And then you don't get that interview. And then you're just kind of trying to pick up the pieces, which I went through. And then I kind of took the, the lower rung job that I could find. And then it's like, boom, real world. Yeah. You're paying rent. You're trying to save. And, Pay off student uh, loans. Yeah. Uh, it's, 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 it's a scary world. It's a rough world out there. Yeah. All right. So let's really dive deep into domestic and international partnerships, in particularly land purchases. And what I mean by that is just in general, purchasing you know, investment properties as a group of friends, for example, or a group of partners, right? Yeah. So what would be what you would consider to be the first steps? You know, not just identifying the properties, but like, do, or do you identify properties before you even establish those partnerships and friendships? So I think, um, you know, if we're looking from a domestic to international front, I, you know, I think that the challenge really lies with how savvy either you are as the individual or, you know, who you're partnering with your, your friend group. Um, and I know we'll talk later on about exploring partnerships and you know, formation, what we look at with partnership agreements. Um, but, you know, from the domestic to international space, it's really about, you know, I know domestically when I'm looking at land to purchase, you know, either for my company or individually, I'm immediately going and starting to look at the applicable zoning um, and, you know, really trying to understand what the land use is currently, what it's anticipated to be in the long term. So if I'm trying to do a new construction project or, you know, maybe there's a project that, you know, in, in your case, you asked about land purchases, mm -hmm. but if you're going maybe for an already built building, you know, yeah. is there a condominium association? How much renovation does it need? So, you know, I'm really trying to dictate the area that I'm purchasing and then kind of doing some basic market research ahead of fully diving in. The challenge internationally is, you know, all the stuff and things you may think of. Uh, oh, I know Montgomery County. Mm -hmm. Oh, I know D.C. Or I know, you know, um, some other suburb in Virginia. And, OK, I can you, I can tell you the demographic data. I can do all this market analysis. I can do all these land use and government policies. But then, oh, I hop over to the U.K. Right. Or I, I hop over to Central America or I want to buy a vacation rental. And the challenge really is. How do those factors differ? Because obviously governments are different outside of the United States, um, you know, laws on whether or not you can capture the appreciable value of real estate, right, differs greatly. Um, if you're actually able to rent, if, uh, you know, your individual, you know, condominium association, whether or not it's in a different state or city or country, um, you know, just has a different structure, and you can't rent if you're held by an LLC, that's domestic versus foreign. So, there's a lot to navigate there. And I think the challenge people 
sometimes misstep into is this is easy or mm -hmm. this makes sense. I'll buy it. I'll rent it. Um, or so, Airbnb it. Or Airbnb it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there might be a little bit more uh, insulation there. I, I haven't really explored that business model um, just because you're kind of you have that quasi corporate entity uh, on the background. But um, as, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, just a base due diligence, I think, is the, the first step. So how do you like in, in doing your market research, your market analysis? How do you is there a particular tool or something you use to identify like future land development plans? Like, you know, you want to move into a right community that may be ripe or early on development before, you know, developers come into that community. Is that something that you look into or pay attention to? That's something I definitely pay attention to. And I think, um, you know, it goes back to what I was saying with like how savvy you are as the individual or your, your group of partners, because I do it every day in my job. So I think for me, it just becomes second nature of like, oh, I know where to look in a county or city ordinance to be like, this is the, the land use. This is the, the breakdown and, you know, floor area ratio. I can, you know, build XYZ project or, you know, this is a... Um, a potential rehabilitation renovation opportunity in you know the northeast sector of dc um it's a non-conforming land use but i'm not going to add anything to it i know you know i have to you know fix xyz and then i'll be able to turn it but then you know obviously in a dc environment for example you know they have topa and there's a lot more kind of tenant constraints around that which is nuanced to dc right um gotcha. but i think to the to the layperson coming into it i mean you can literally search you know Montgomery County Comprehensive Plan or Montgomery County Thrive or Loudoun County Comprehensive Plan or Fairfax. And you'll see, you know, the most current zoning codes and, and, and rule books and building codes. So, you know, they're thousand upon thousand a page of granular documents, which is why lawyers have jobs, right? right. Because the, the typical layperson, unless you're truly interested to become this investment professional, you're most likely going to go into a project as a first time owner, realize, okay, I can maybe charge X rent. Um, you know, I can maybe support, um, a certain percentage of one, twos and three bedrooms. And, um, this is what my cash flow looks like. And I made my, you know, LLC or I have my partnership and, um, you know, I got my loan from the bank mm -hmm. and you get there and they're like, oh, I forgot this, or I forgot that, or I'm in my public hearing meeting with the locality and I'm getting rejections because I'm actually asking for a variance, but I didn't do that extra level of legwork. So a lot of that really just comes into play, I, I think, at the onset, especially, and I think, like you were just saying, with the, the land purchase. Because mm -hmm. when it's land, I think it becomes really critical to understand what the current and potentially future use can be. Makes sense. So I, I feel like there's a lot there, especially when you talked about like the city ordinances or like even the county. Sure. It depends or what's planned or proposed to happen. So, you know, if someone is really like scouring through those documents to see you know i'm not saying you 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 know that these options are going to be there right or you just see that there is potential for development in a particular area and you may want to hop on purchasing land also in that area right so if like for example let's say we, we know amazon is coming to a particular area right and and you we don't not sure exactly where but there's communication there's the discussion around it and now oh maybe i want to go in partnership with some friends purchase some land in a particular area that are that is nearby where we we see what a potential development may happen so i think that's pretty good tip there for individuals to look into 
Well, you hit the nail on the head with what you just said, which was what I was going to follow up with. Like, I'm talking about it a lot more and like the, it, it's hard for me sometimes to blur the line between like how I personally look at something versus mm-hmm. professionally, because like I said before, I look at it so often. I, I think um, the point you brought up that was great was, you know, Crystal City with Amazon. And I think to somebody who's relatively new, I think there's also kind of just an intuition with real estate investing that, you know, I think some people may have over others that's, you know, just kind of, this makes sense. Mm-hmm. Or I can't explain why, but I think we sh- I should look here to do something or, you know, even taking a step out. Like I, I know, for, you know, Frederick, Maryland, right? I mean, you look at the inner core of the DC DMV area and you're like, well, even if I wanted to buy, uh, you know, a, a rental apartment community, or I wanted to buy a singular unit that I split with friends, or mm-hmm. I wanted to build new on a mm-hmm. piece of land. Right. Uh, this in our in our current environment, it's it's too expensive, so I have to keep going out to outer bands. But then you also have to think, well, there's people who want to live here who can't live here, so where are they moving next? Outer bands as well. Outer bands. Yeah. And you know, I I've been to Frederick. I think it's a great town. I think it's got a lot of like um you know works to it and I, I think you know there's some some great restaurant spots and there's oh, some yeah. pockets there with the mark train yeah know, there's I, some great restaurant spots and breweries out there yes yeah, so i think it really becomes when you know we're fortunate to be in an area of such great economic development and a, a big employment center that's yeah nothing's truly i think re- recession proof but that's pretty insulated we from, are very close to that yeah very close to that it's hard for us to really see like unless you step out your bubble and mm-hmm. like i was telling you with my past experience going to different states until you kind of go somewhere else and you're like, wow, there, there's nothing here. If, if this employment center moves out, this town's dead. You right. Know? I, I think it's kind of also just stepping outside your comfort zone to see also potentially, you know, what demographics do you want to serve? Because I think, you know, for a lot of starting real estate investors or people interested in getting into it, a, a lot of it just becomes about you know, I, I remember you, you had a podcast on this as well about passive income mm-hmm. and everybody talks about check it out. Passive income. Yeah, check it out. No, really. I mean, and it, it's such a buzzword because people, I think, realize after you're working so many years from starting low like we did mm-hmm. and work on our way up. Well, I can invest X amount in my 401k or an IRA. And then what else is there? Right. How do I diversify? Correct. What do I do? I don't understand the whole crypto space I, I, or I'm not comfortable taking wild swings. Maybe I just want to put it in real estate for a long term investment. So when you start bridging that, I, th- I think it I think the challenge of just anybody's investment environment on a general level is just trying to, you know, sift through the weeds of what's available. And I, I think real estate, it's, it's, it's a good diversification source. But, you know, with it, it comes a lot of potholes along the way absolutely so let's explore that so we are now consider those options you know we've done our due diligence our market research and now we, we considering establishing or structuring an llc right and so i feel like that is critically important but you brought up something a while ago when we were chatting about this topic a few months ago about like a double llc or llc structure that you 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 reference so you can explain that a little bit more Sure. So I think um, it's good just to start off with, you know, for people who don't know what an LLC is, it stands for limited liability company, or if other people have heard the term pass through entity. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically with this type of structure, all profits and losses generated by that LLC or company are passed directly to the owner who then it incurs it on their personal tax return. Right. Um, So the corporation itself isn't paying the tax. 
Um, and and the, this can be structured either as like a single purpose LLC, so it's a singular individual, or if you have one or more partners, um, it then, as the IRS categorizes it, is a partnership where yeah. then, you know, it's passed through to each of the different owners of that LLC um, based off their certain percentages. And that's why you hear terms of like, oh, to report your taxes, it's on a K-1 schedule mm -hmm. because that's pretty much breaking down the individual partner's interests on, on that more informational tax form. So, you know, starting with the base LLC entity, it then becomes, well, why do I even need that? Why would I pay this like hundred or so dollar filing fee with the state just to, you know, register this company for myself? And it really becomes about, you know, insulating risk from yourself, right? which, which is huge. So, you know, asset protection. If I am the owner, say, of like one of our townhomes and we move and want to rent it mm -hmm. and we just rent it as an individual and then for some reason something goes haywire and you know the the resident you know files a lawsuit well if there's no insulation it comes directly back to you as the owner but then your core assets your bank account you know all that stuff that's related to you yeah you know can be collateral yes and there's a lot of risk so by forming this llc entity you're insulating the risk um, directly to yourself, just to that business entity that doesn't own anything right, right outside of the core real estate. Um, also, two, which is great for a lot of people is privacy. Your, your personal name isn't on it. You know, you can have a different name on the LLC like, hey, I'm Warren, but my LLC is yet yeah, like X3C, you know, media. Yeah, media. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little, little uh, shameless, uh, uh, shameless plug. There. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, you know, so those, those are kind of the two basic general types. But, you know, a lot of the times with either what my company does or I've seen before is you can have an umbrella LLC yeah. or maybe a managing member type of LLC that is, you know, the main owner of multiple pieces mm. of real estate that all individually have their own LLCs. Got it. That's what you're um, referring to. Okay. Yeah. So it's just kind of a, an extra layer of protection, but, you know, kind of the same pass through type of structure. And um, it just basically just starts to, as your portfolio grows, really mm -hmm. insulate you further. I, th I think that's a good kind of general description. I think so. Getting two in the yeah, ways. I think so. And I, I wonder, and it's never a, a, a wrong. Well, I would say it's never a wrong process to maybe formulating one, and then as you mentioned, as you grow, maybe restructuring that LLC structure there. Um, or do you think it's better to just? develop i don't know because sometimes people don't have the foresight to, or to, to to see out how far they want you know strategize their particular moves but maybe you want to develop something that's with the structure in mind first yeah i mean i, I think you can develop pretty much the lc or, or form an entity whenever you want to yeah i mean it's pretty quick it is process. Pretty quick. so you don't yeah. really need to like set up like i'm gonna own five properties so i need five right separate lcs right now like yeah that, that i don't think that's necessary i think it's just like you know you can you can go one at a time and then if yeah. you get larger enough yeah you can scale more into that umbrella type structure as i was talking about i know um you know this is probably outside the scope of this conversation but you know s corp c corps they have completely different tax benefits. Um, you right. Know, that, you know, that once again to the always open the maybe having a, an advanced session where we can, you know, peel back the onion even further. But, uh, you know, I'm definitely going to probably ask that question as I get into understanding venture capital. I, I definitely thought about that and understanding those those series of levels of funding and how all, all that plays together. That's um, something I'm interested in. So, yeah, we definitely could probably talk about that in a future episode. Sure. Um, something you brought up about 
um, the structuring and in, 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 in establishing the LLC. And I agree, it is very easy. And in the state of Maryland, I think it is also easy. However, I did have a little bit of hiccup because I always sign my name a certain way. Okay. But I always write my name a certain way. And because I left off my middle initial, just one letter, yeah, it's, it's, the yeah. process was horrific. And it, it, it was almost like they, they sent the documents back to me to sign. I'm like, once you sign a PDF that's locked, it's locked. Oh, yeah. And it's locked for a reason, right? Yeah. And so there was no way for me to change that without going through the process all over again. So, yeah, it is easy. But that little minor little piece there did was a little hiccup for me. Um, Just double check and, and triple check and right. quadruple check. Right. <laughs> Annoying. So exploring the tax protections for establishing LLCs or just in general going into those partnerships and, and maybe even in particular, it's not an even 25, 25, 25, for example, if you have four investors going into it, maybe it's like a 5% somewhere, 50% there. Like, is there some type of tax protections that you can gain for establishing LLC? Well, I think I, I highlighted it generally. One of the, the first big ones is just the pass through. Entity, mm -hmm. um, and you know we can highlight that again if, if needed. But also too, if you have like a, a single member LLC, you know those can you know benefit from mortgage interest reductions. Okay. Um, so you know that that is a, po um, a positive. Additionally, too, with um, just generally the rental income that's generated by the property doesn't incur any tax penalties, and then mm -hmm. also um, the appreciation on the value of the property doesn't incur a tax penalty. I, th I think when, you know, you're looking at also um, selling a piece of real estate, um, you know, also looking at 1031 exchanges, um, you know, where you can, you know, close on, you know, comparable property in the same year. Yeah. You can defer the tax on the gain until a later point in time. So, you know, those come to the top of mind. Um, but from the second part of your question regarding like the 25, 25, 25 percent or 510, you know, that's not really, um, you know, because that goes back to the larger kind of multi-party or like partnership, you know, multi-party LC, um, where you know that's all dictated earlier on in the in the partnership agreement stage. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, that's all broken out at, at the K one schedule, pretty much showing, hey, this is what everybody's liable for. This is how much you know equity people have, distributions, things along those lines, which are outlined on those K-1 schedules. Got it. Um, but yeah, we can definitely get more into like percentages. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, just, yeah, because, you know, for the lay, you know, the, those who are, you know, new to this and, and uh, I, I'm, I'm here to share information, you know, not too complex, but, you know, informative enough for everyone and individuals to understand. And those who are more advanced, obviously, you know, <laughs> yeah, will understand what we're talking about as well. But maybe we just explore that, you know, formulate those K one um, agreements, and you know, maybe explore an example. Sure. I mean, I, I think the once again, I'm I'm, I'm neither a, a you know a attorney or a you know CPA professional. But, neither one of us yeah. are, and I think this is a perfect time to add in the plug. Yeah, this is not financial advice. Yeah, correct. I think this is more just kind of a, an offload of you know both of our brains, right? Correct. That's, that's we are here to form uh, to provide information based off of our experiences. But however, this is not something that we are saying as um, a financial advisor. Yeah, and and once again, I, and and going back briefly, you know, with that said, 
like like I was saying before, the K one really is it's just indicating how much money each member will be responsible for reporting. Got it. Based off the percentage. So if if you have a sheet, it would say you know your one partner's entity, you know the distributions they took that year, what their profit loss you know capital account looks like. And then there's a bunch of other sheets where it lists their, you know, EIN number. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a lot of those more general forms. I mean, it, it, it doesn't look like I'm trying to think of a comparable tax form, but it just looks like your standard IRS, you know, tax form. If you've seen, you know, like a W-2 yeah. or some other document. So it, it's like a larger scale breakout of that. And if you have multiple pieces of real estate that are under similarly um, or, or different assigned LLCs, um, you know, I remember talking to one of the partners at my firm and he's like, oh, it's taxis. And he had a book like a hundred pages long. And I was, you know, it's uh, purely a just very large informational tax document. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds complex. That's why I have a tax accountant. That, that is why I have a tax accountant. You, no turbo tax for me. <laughs> Absolutely yeah. not. I've yeah. learned my lesson. Um, another plug here. I will have a tax episode with my tax accountant. Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I've learned. I, I've learned my lesson <laughs> and I would say, please stay tuned to the episode to hear the horror stories. Cause I will go into details about that. Let's play a game here. Right. So we have this establishment partnership structure agreement. Everyone agrees. We, we, we purchased a property, not even a land property. In this case, we actually purchased a investment property, right? We did a little bit of renovation to that property and now everything is rented out maybe even one or two units of Airbnb, you know, we have a a multi-use here in this, let's just say it's a, it's a four unit uh, building. Okay. What do you recommend doing? Now I have an idea that I would do with, 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 with the revenue or the profits, if you will, but what do you recommend? Like, is it reinvesting into the mortgage to pay off the loan faster or earlier or, you know, if if applicable or using a property to, I'm sorry, using a profit uh, or the gains, if you will, to reinvest in purchasing the secondary, you know, uh, unit, or maybe even setting up a structure where you have maybe a percent for um, repairs, a percent for when a property is vacant, but then all other dollars associated with that don't take that profit into your pocket. You reinvest that as a group partners, and that money goes back into some other. So, what are you, exploring that idea, what do you, what are your recommendations? Well, as you know, assuming like once again, you did your due diligence, you know, like this is a fair rent for this asset type and it's comparable to the, you know, if it's say like a condo in an apartment community and, you know, this is what everybody else is charging and you factored in your condo fees or, you know, uh, any costs there. And I, I think it really starts to come down to, for me personally, projecting out profit mm-hmm. and projecting out how long do I want to own this asset? Is it something where, hey, we rent this out for, you know, six months out of the year and the other six months we all share it or, you know, right. Is you know, I think that that also comes into play because if you're generating say only six months of revenue, you know, I, I think then it becomes, you know, do we just take the distributions out and, you know, call it a day each year um, with a little aside for a replacement reserve fund or any funds for capital repairs. Um, you know, because also too, when you're paying that condo fee, it's also supporting the common area yes. space for the building. Um, uh, you know, I think if you're looking at revenue, let's just say in this scenario too, you're, you're popping by, but you're let's just say it's for the year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's bad to start looking at other properties. I think if it's a new partnership, 
and I think we should dive into this after this point, mm-hmm. um, a little bit more about form, finding partners or, you know, partnering yes. with friends. I yes. think that's an important topic. I think it's a very important topic. No, I, I agree. I, I think it, it becomes about, well, is everybody on the same page of how they want to treat the distribution? Um, you know, because like I said before, because if it's multiple people and they have their own percentage that they're paying and they're going to take that tax head for taking the distribution when everybody else wants to keep in the property. Okay. You know, if you want to reinvest it in another asset, that's also a larger group discussion. So I think it's the it's the answer everybody hates, like that teachers give in, in it school. Depends. It depends. It yeah. depends. Exactly. <laughs> it's fluid. <laughs> yeah, it's it's yeah, it can change. But it really is true with this because you're just gonna have a lot of different personalities at play and dynamics. The more people you add into, a, you know, a partnership. Um, and I think for an investment type of asset, you know, if you guys have predetermined times that you want to visit the space and then you're renting it out the rest of the year, like we talked about, like having a little side for repairs, you know, if, if the place is already furnished, Mm -hmm. um, if it's not furnished, are you going to like, you know, fix up the equipment? Are you going to have maybe a cleaning service that comes Mm -hmm. in every time somebody comes in? Absolutely. Someone, someone to stock the fridge, especially if you're going to Airbnb it or, you know, have it as a, let's you say a six month. Rental maybe in the down seasons. This is places that maybe located in a tropical region or some that's a high volume tourist location. Well, and then also too the Airbnb situation you brought up. It's just like you know, um, if, if you've learned more about that structure, you know how much do they take off the top, right? You know that that's also important to factor in on top of the condo fees. So then when you start peeling back the onion, and then it's like, okay, well, hey, this year we had six months rented. Next year we only have three months rented. Um, because we visit a lot more mm-hmm. and then it's like, oh, are we breaking even? Are we are we making our mortgage? Do we buy it all cash? Right. You know, I, I think, you know, there's a lot of facets to this that can drive your goals for the, you know, how, how to treat cash flow. Yeah. And that's why, you know, a little bit long winded, but I think my brain operates like there, there's so many facets just being like, hey, we got this gross check at the end of the year. What do we do with it? Which I think a lot of people reinvest it. Reinvest, yeah. And so my idea would be, you know, to to do just that. And I obviously would establish all of those parameters ahead of time in the agreement. I'm absolutely if I'm going into partnership with some individuals, you know, the idea is how far are we going to go with this? Uh, you know, ahead of time, if we just we want to invest in maybe multiple properties, or oh, and, and to your point you brought up earlier, which I did not consider is is we, we paying this in cash or we getting a loan, right? Oh, yeah. So that that is and if very this is, and if this is international, like I was saying earlier, well, what's can I can we capture appreciation down the road? Yeah. Or is this just a place that we're hey we're fine, you know, writing it off, and if we can rent it for a few bucks, that's great. But we all really enjoy going there year over year. Yeah, that's because true. The worst thing is it's like ten years down the road. Half of us are tired of it. We want to sell out. You buy out the other partner's interest. Mm-hmm. Then you're, you know, with two people left and you're 50, 50 partners and you're like, Hey, is uh, this worth it? Is, is it worth it? And I think that's, that's where it's tough for a lot of people who I also don't, who also look at numbers or think numbers are scary and are like, I don't want to budget this out. I don't want to touch budgeting. I, you know, Warren, I can't even budget my coffee per week, you know, at, at Starbucks, you know, and then you're like, you want me to invest in real estate? But no, then no, you're not the partner for me. Yeah, you're not the partner. Yeah, I, no. I agree. But I think it's, it's tough because especially with friends, the benefit is there might be a numbers guy mm-hmm. or there might be, like I was saying before, a land use guy or there might be somebody who likes the legal items or is a lawyer. That's true. Or an accountant who can who can work through the minutia. I think, you know, but in your situation, like I was saying with like international property, it, it's just... There, there might be a lot of risk that you're not realizing. And I think yeah. taking the due diligence to just understand, you know, do I have to incorporate and buy through an international 
um, you know, entity or can I incorporate domestically and buy internationally? Right. And, um, was, and those are things that, you know, I, I can't answer. I think it's it's just really based off the situation. You know, as you were talking, I was thinking immediately I can name six people. I won't do it here, but I can name six people immediately. Close friends that have a multi multiple level of skills that I think would be valuable to establishing a partnership with. You know, um, you on the list and a few other people, but I think it's, it's, it, you're right. I think it's important to have individuals who have a certain amount of expertise and experience that could come to the table. Um, and for me, I would consider that, and I'm not looking for people to have the same level of thinking, right? Sure. I want to have that diverse abilities and skills and just, you know, even, even a solid partner is someone you may oh. want to consider as well. Right. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, you, you, you have you hear the notion from some individuals where, you know, I am, I, I, I will not at all do business with family or friends, right? Mm -hmm. Because people think it's dangerous, but I'm thinking, well, my personality, I don't know if I want to get an agreement with a stranger who I don't know, right? That's a risk to that as well. Yeah, there, there's a lot of risks there. And I think, you know, when you work with somebody you don't know, that becomes is there a dynamic fit for mm -hmm. a lot of people or are our goals aligned and I, I we haven't had a lot of conversations so i don't know you the the flip side to family is i know you too well too well i know what makes you tick yeah you know i i feel like maybe or there's some people who feel that you know they don't need to fully respect your opinion or they don't have to give you a direct answer in the moment and then mm. when it's when you're doing a business transaction i think it needs to be understood by all parties that this is a business transaction absolutely this is not it does not reflect anything on you or my opinion on you. I'm making a decision for something I want to do either by myself, with my significant other, with my friends. And you can be a part of it or you can't, but this is why it makes sense to me. And then you can kind of evaluate from there. I, I think too many times people blend the emotional side with the business side. And, that, and that's not only in real estate, right? I, I think it becomes with a lot of things like, oh, invest you know X amount of dollars in this stock. Oh, you told me to do it in a tank. Like, why'd you tell me to do that? Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I, it, it's it's the same kind of concept where when you kind of have that friend and family and familiarity barrier, I think dividing the lines needs to become clearer at the onset as opposed to, you know, oh, we're friends. We'll figure it out as we go. Because I think that's kind of a minefield. Oh, hell yeah. Hell yes. You can't figure out as you go. Yeah. Uh, we have to document everything, establish that plan and and have an agreement. Well, yeah, and I think on, on that note, I think it's a good segue into it is we talked earlier about like, oh, you know, the with the K-1s or you see like 25, 25% or 5%. One, we, we kind of touched on it earlier, like how, how do you as an investor derive somebody else's value or how do you derive the value of your partners that mm -hmm. you're with? Because, you know, once again, looking at something as hey, this is a, you know, a beach rental that we come to as a group all the time. And that's what it is. And we're fine not making money on it, maybe renting it here and there, but we're just fine going. That's completely different than we are going a maximum of three months out of the year and the other nine we're renting it. Mm -hmm. And that's the plan. Mm -hmm. And then, like I was saying before, with valuing your partners, okay, do I derive value off of people's skill sets? You know, they're an attorney. So they're obviously going to be carrying a lot of weight. He works for a property management company. He'll be able to rent it out. He's he's really getting the revenue for this project in and out the door. 
you know, is that a factor to consider? Mm -hmm. But then, you know, what I think that the general person, you know, doesn't think about, which is something I think about with my partners a lot is who's writing the guarantees. And what I mean by that is if there's a fire, if there's something to replace, who has the cash to shell up to the bank or to an investor, or, you know, if you don't have an investor, but who, who can cover the cost? And, and in my world, I feel if you're going to be an owner at an equal percentage to everybody else, then you should be either putting in the same amount mm-hmm. or being able to ride the wave of, you know, what goes wrong. And, you know, on a completely just general note, I, I think there's a big misperception about, you know, you know, just development in general. As a real estate developer, I'm never looking at something as how does this like work? What makes the most cash flow for my company? What makes the most cash flow for me? I look at things. How do how do I break this? How does this not work? Okay. And that I think is really good advice to people looking at even a partnership or a deal. And why wouldn't I do this? Right. And then getting comfortable with more of those worst case scenarios. Can I ride that storm? If I don't go there for the year and we don't rent it out as much, is it still worth the same amount to me as it was when I was, you know, there the first time having a pina colada on the balcony? <laughs> right. Which is, it's tough because then there's, then inherently you're saying, oh, I had some emotional tie to it mm-hmm. in that moment because I had a lot of enjoyment and that's fine. But I think it becomes what is the purpose of that investment? Exactly. Um, right. It, Are we weird. here to enjoy it or is purely an investment property? Well, we won't stay there at all. You know, we, we're trying to drive as much profit and capital out of this venture as much as possible. Yeah, correct. But I, I think, you know, once again, if, if I'm breaking it down to nuts and bolts, but one of the biggest things I work with is the partner I'm with. Yes, I think you need to have some form of core alignment. You don't need to agree on everything, but mm-hmm. some form of core alignment of like, okay, I anticipate we anticipate holding this for 10 years renting it on xyz period maybe in in you know taking a distribution every two years and maybe reinvesting proceeds you know next year and i think that's kind of a good foundation what you don't want is okay i have five partners on this one project we have a ton of uh you know fun then two people disappear off the face of the earth you're trying to sell it but you need the consent of those two partners who've disappeared off the face of the earth and mm-hmm. you have to try to track them down and that right. reveals its own problems and then it's you know if you can sell it it's not worth as much if you can't sell it then you're holding it for a long time or you're trying to buy them out and you know once again this is one being more of a contingency plan yeah but it's like you kind of see my I, I just try to think of do i really know who i'm going to business with exactly right and, and because i think a lot of things too and you also talked about this before people don't normally have uh comfortable conversations intrinsically even with their close friends about money yes and when hop on it all the time yeah and and when you're making it about money which a real estate investment like a stock investment is money out of your pocket yeah that's a dividing line you know i want to normalize the conversation about speaking about money and you guys will hear me talk about this repeatedly on almost every episode because, you know, I did, you know, we, we all know the general statistic for when when someone says, what's the number one factor why marriages fail? And, well, usually the number one factor, it's financial, money, right? It's all, almost, that's the, the, the biggest issue, right? Making it rain. Money is the problem, right? But it's also the same problem with friendships, 
and family. Money is always the root and the issue to all relationships. And so, you know, if we could just normalize the conversation and talk about money, it would be less taboo, you know, to people. And 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 I think that 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 is something you is critical when developing partnerships. You have to be able to have money related conversations. Well, I'm correct, and I, I think uh, the challenge is banks won't take you seriously above certain income thresholds, you know, to get a certain type of loan, especially for an investment property. Mm-hmm. And everyone's just like, oh, I'll just do, you know, we'll, we'll try to get to 20%. Well, you know, for a lot of investment properties, it's 30% down that banks want to see. Correct. You know, so that's an additional 10%. That and is. Then, you know, uh, and then we talked just now about money, but some of your partners, if they don't have substantial net worth, sometimes banks will want to see them on a personal guarantee. And this is for larger structures. This mm-hmm. is for like, you know, if you're doing like a duplex or a triplex or a quad or which is what I want to do. Yeah. Or yeah, <laughs> no, I, I agree. Uh, but, or, or something larger, mm-hmm. there's gotta be one person then who's really carrying the weight and mm-hmm. you know, not that there's anything wrong with having like a, mi- a minority interest partner at 10% or 20% and you hold the 80. Right. But that just needs to be calculated because Hey, you spend more time here than I do, or, you know, um, I, I want to get some benefit of the appreciation of this property, but you know, that becomes an earlier conversation of, well, how much do we put in at the onset? Do we have the same goals? Are you trying to exit this after three years because you don't want to keep visiting this place? <laughs> so I, I think that becomes, it, there's, and that I, obviously I know more of your situation right. with the, the property we've talked about before, which is, you know, why I think my conversation's more focused in the beach rental space, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. you know, that- Also, I'm a cancer what? and everything is about water to me. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I think uh, my, my last note is if it's like a typical, like we were just talking about quadplex, where it's truly looked at as, you know, not a co-sharing or, or a, a timeshare type or quasi-type timeshare with a rental component. And well, if it's just purely... It could be yeah. if you're thinking about that. Well, you're right. It's a mixed use, if you will. So in that example, you know, we have like us maybe renting out three of the units, mm-hmm. three rental units, and maybe, excuse me, that that fourth unit is the one where you are maybe timesharing it for a period of time, Airbnb, you know, or, or even using... For all investors to use that one particular unit um so yeah I, i'm sure that's a lot more complex but that is something that obviously be agreed upon yeah and, and don't get me wrong i think the I, I don't think it's a bad idea i just think it's just laying the ground rules early especially with people you know yeah i think goes goes a long way but we're also in the climate where you know builder rents really blowing up it's um, insane it, we need yeah. some we, I'm, I, I'm all about regulations right you, there have to be some form of regulations on it and i get it you know you have personal properties right we own our individual properties right and we want to see the value of that property increase i mean that is the goal building equity in your home building capital but in the same regard you know you're renting out that property and you also want to because for you that is a business i'm in it air quote to make money i'm not renting out my property for to help someone out right i'm i'm purely in there as a business owner to make money and so i get it you want to increase the rent you want to increase your profit margins but there has to be some level of control over that right right now it seems to be unregulated and the numbers are it, it's it, in some cities especially like in atlanta georgia and i have a lot of people who talk who live there and talk about how the rent has increased 
X amount percent compared to where it was pre-pandemic. And what's the driving force? Is it really, is it a housing shortage? I can see the, you know, supply and demand issue there, but is it really that? Or is it, we can, we can garner more money. So therefore we will. I think when you're looking at that problem, this, especially where we're at in the United States, I think it really focuses on who is the home buyer um, at, at the base of it. Because I think you, you got to, like you said, as the real estate investor and you're looking at going into things with with friends or, you know, uh, on your own, you're really you're more thinking I'm a business owner. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking dollar signs. For me, it's a little bit different because I, I've seen the other side of the puzzle where it's like I've, you know, between profit and mission where I'm in affordable housing. So we are trying to provide rental products for people from, you know, 30% or below their immediate income up into the 80% bands, which mm-hmm. covers a wide range of demographics. A wide for, range. Yeah, yes, exactly. From, you know, um, you know, permanent supportive housing units up until, you know, your, your firefighters and, and mm-hmm. things along those lines. So uh, developers, I, I don't really think, tend to think of the homeowner when they're, you know, like look at the war, for example. Right. I mean, just like development around that area is, is exploding, but with it, values. And I think we're in a challenging point where, yes, debt is cheap to, you know, get a mortgage mm-hmm. right now. Right now. Um, and, you know, interest rates are relatively low. I know there's been some regression back upwards. Uh, but it's still yeah, relatively but, but, low. Yeah, relatively mm-hmm. low historically. But, you know, generational wealth, right? The, the the current buyer or you know kids coming out of school it's they don't have that you know kind of inherited nest egg or you know obviously salaries are radically different than they were in the 70s and 80s but you know i'll, I'll digress off that topic <laughs> but i i think it's really you know i don't have this kind of pot of cash where i can use the down payment even though i can afford maybe what the mortgage would be because mm-hmm. a lot of rents you know are at or above some of what the mortgage would be for a comparable project at which is, or above absolutely yeah, at or above. like i know me and my wife when we were in boston were you know paying around like mid you know 2000s and then our mortgage was just slightly higher and we have a three-bedroom townhome in maryland but in mm-hmm. boston it was a you know 600 square foot one bedroom 600 square foot yeah location 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 yeah exactly <laughs> and i think that's a lot of market rate investors or developers know if, if you're savvy or like hey i did my market analysis right we talked about due diligence mm-hmm. i know exactly what i can get i know exactly what i can increase upon and hey if i'm displacing somebody i don't care because i know the demand is high enough to do that and, then and that, i could dem- demand this amount yeah and i mean you know obviously the the scope of our conversation tonight is more about like you know, the partnerships and how we get things done. But then I think, you know, what we're kind of bridging into is then you have the ethical dilemma. Right. And, you know, I, I think then that also crosses a line between we talked about emotional and professional. Yeah. But then there's ethical, which is kind of the weird in between. I think we are great for um, a partnership with someone who's really um, linear when it comes to like someone's thinking about money. And they want, you know, to pursue the profit as much as possible. And someone like us will balance off that that team um, dynamic, if you will. So I think that's highly critical. You guys, if you are considering developing a partnership or you're going into partners with friends and or family and or strangers to consider those things, you know, not just that this person have the financial means, but also that this person have a skill and aptitude to provide something other to the table. I think that is highly important. Yeah, I agree. Anything else you want to share with the listeners today on this topic? 
I mean, I, I think, you know, as you know, and as the listeners are coming to know, I can talk for hours on end. We can talk for we hours, can talk on hours on end. Yep. Uh, but uh, no, I appreciate you having me on today. I think this was a, a good, good discussion. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this was a good chat. Um, so until next week, so remember, positive energy leads to positive vibes. Don't forget to subscribe if this is your first time joining. No Pants Required can be found on Google Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Peace. Peace. Peace.